Hello, NSA. This is Jim Cathcart. Welcome to the first 2014 Voices of Experience. This month, our theme is New Beginnings. It's all about renewal and rebirth. Time for our New Year's commitments. Not just resolutions, but decisions that are followed up with sustained commitment. In this issue, you will meet three people who started in one direction and then changed their paths when unexpected opportunities arose. And that, as the poet says, has made all the difference. Our first guest is the best-known Benjamin Franklin on Earth, literally. Of all the people who have acted as or dressed up like Benjamin Franklin, our first guest is by far the best known and most successful among them. And he doesn't just dress up like and act like Ben Franklin. He'll tell you about that in the interview. And the interesting thing is he didn't start out along that path at all. He discovered the opportunity and changed directions. I am with Ralph Archbold today. I'm also with Ben Franklin today. Ralph, welcome back to the Voices of Experience. Well, it's a delight to be here, Jim. And it's always good to see you and all of my NSA friends. And I've admired your career for so long. You made a choice early on to embody the character Benjamin Franklin. That's true. And to deliver presentations in that character, to be in in one respect an actor, in another respect a historian, in another respect a speaker. And uh, I know you've done both presentations as yourself, Ralph Archbold, but also you've your main most visible career has been as ben franklin that's true where did you start because you're in philadelphia now but you didn't begin there i started in dearborn michigan which is where henry ford had a museum and a greenfield village historical village and they were looking for someone to portray ben franklin and through a series of accidents i ended up being that person and that was that was quite a so it started with a local so gig where somebody else gig. suggested it to you. And I didn't have anything to say. They gave me a script. <laughs> so I learned their lines, and I did that. And during the time I was doing that, which was during a summer, a man came up to me and he said, you know, you should do this to speak to groups. Mm-hmm. I said, I don't have anything to say. He said, well, you better find something to say. And he told me about Jordan's, the pre-Jordan's showcase down in Atlanta. Yep. Jordan was... hooked me up there. Was a speaker's bureau for many years, the dominant speaker's bureau among those of us in NSA. So uh, I started researching, and I decided, you know, this is a good career. Mm -hmm. Now, where do they need me? Well, the first place they needed me was schools, and people would ask, do you come to schools? Again, I had nothing to say, so I researched it, and I wrote a program geared to different school levels, and it started off from there. And then I started talking about, thinking about, all right, what do, what do adult groups need to hear? Yeah. What do they need to know about Ben Franklin, from Ben Franklin? And before long, I realized I was, I was doing meetings in, in Detroit, mm-hmm. and quite frankly, there was no reason to have Ben Franklin at your convention in Detroit. Yeah. But I thought, you know, in Philadelphia, there's no reason not to have Ben Franklin at your convention. <laughs> so I decided to move to Philadelphia. So you're a marketer, too. And uh, Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And I came to Philadelphia and decided I want to get across, because I found out in Philadelphia they had a lot of people portraying Ben Franklin. Yeah. But they were basically standing around saying hello at a cocktail party. Mm-hmm. And I said, Ben has a message. 
So I started marketing to the convention groups and the meetings that were coming to Philadelphia. And before long, it took off. Mm-hmm. You know, in many cities, you'll find there's a, a single individual or two, maybe, where they, uh, they've named a lot of things after them. But nowhere, nowhere is there an omnipresent name or personality like Ben Franklin in That's Philadelphia. That's true. Um, you know, if you think of the city, you think of uh, Philadelphia, you think of Ben Franklin. Yeah. And um, there really is no other city that's like that. In fact, the city of Philadelphia, I became the official Ben Franklin for Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. And they would send me to conventions, travel conventions, because, uh, again, as soon as people saw Ben Franklin, they'd think of Philadelphia. Yeah, you were, you were their ambassador. Right. To, to the world, though. I mean, this is taking oh, yeah. you across the Oh, yeah, across I did things oceans. in Berlin and in London and, and uh, all over the place. When you came to Philadelphia, now you uprooted yourself from Dearborn and came to Philadelphia with a very clear marketing intent yeah. and a very enlightened choice, I might add. And you got here, um, you know, the, there's obvious things you would do. You would you know, do the typical speaker marketing thing to get your name out there. But what else did you do in those early days? Well, the first thing I did in a year before I came to Philadelphia was I came and looked at what was going on here. Mm-hmm. And I joined the Convention and Visitors Bureau in Philadelphia because I wanted to speak to meetings that were coming to Philadelphia. I figured, you know, I'm going to be there. They can have me. There's no reason not to have me at their meeting. And it just occurred to me, what a wonderful blessing to not have to travel as much as most speakers. Right. Yeah. Wow. Cool. What else did you do? (laughs) (laughs) So I, uh, by joining that organization, I had a list of all the conventions coming into Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And so I started marketing to these people and saying, at that time, the slogan for Pennsylvania was, you've got a friend in Pennsylvania. So my marketing slogan was, Philadelphia without Franklin is like Pennsylvania without a friend. (laughs) And people liked that. I've got a friend in Philadelphia, and his name's Benjamin Franklin. That's not too bad. Not too <laughs> and, bad. And, uh, you know, I marketed with the idea, you know, you can have a former postmaster, mm-hmm. a, uh, a diplomat, a scientist, an inventor, all speak at your convention. And a librarian, for that and matter. And a librarian. <laughs> and the nice thing about Ben Franklin is he had an association with almost any industry you could think of. He was I, like... Um, Da Vinci, Leonardo Da Vinci. Yeah. He was a, a he had an interest in everything. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, um, I once spoke to a funeral directors convention, mm-hmm. and it was called the Association of Preferred Funeral Directors. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, I am more qualified to speak than most of your speakers because I have had a funeral, mm-hmm. and quite frankly, I do prefer a funeral director. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you talked about something interesting earlier. You talked about mentioning me as a historian, actor, mm-hmm. speaker. Mm-hmm. And I'm not as much of a, I mean, I know a lot of the history of Ben Franklin, but I'm not a historian as such. Yeah. And what I present in my speaking is not a historical lesson. I'm not a textbook. Mm-hmm. I take the ideas and the techniques of Franklin and I bring them to a modern audience. But I'm also not an actor, and I am a speaker. Mm-hmm. And there's a difference, and I think that's an important difference between acting and speaking. And I think everybody should really understand that. An actor is on that stage for you to appreciate his, his or her performance. Mm-hmm. The script is not the important thing. They'll take any script and do justice for it, and you are there to appreciate the great performance that they bring to that script. Good point. A speaker is there because they have a burning desire 
to give you the message. The message is the focus. And so the big difference is that the speaker is geared toward the audience and the actor is geared toward the performer. So I prefer to be called a speaker rather than an actor. Wonderful distinction. Absolutely powerful. Dr. Franklin and Ralph Archbold, thank you so much for your gifts to our country and to our profession. Well, I thank this profession every day, and I thank you, Jim, for being a friend, a good friend, and for introducing me to NSA. Thank you, Ralph. Well, folks, I have the pleasure of being with Steve Krenz right now. Steve Krenz is the man who authored Learn and Master Guitar. Now then, he's got a thriving business built around this. He's got a huge following. What's the nature of your business as you describe it these days? We do home instruction courses over mm-hmm. a variety of things. My specialty is the guitar, yep. but we have other areas of the, of our company do uh, other music courses, piano and, and drums and things like okay. that. And then the focus of it is is just in-depth, lots of content, good quality home mm-hmm. instruction. Our courses have multiple DVDs, anywhere from 12 to 20 DVDs that are part of it. Our focus is hitting just the, the fellow or the gal that wants to learn. They're tired of, of watching little tip videos on YouTube, yeah. and, and they want to get real content, and they want to really learn how to do this or that, and they want to play <laughs> for their own very, very personal and, and meaningful reasons. Yeah, I love that. Well, can you take us back in history and tell us how did you start all this? I was from San Antonio, Texas, and had was was working there and having great everything was all was going well. But I had this nagging idea to uh, come to Nashville and become a guitar player of all crazy things, like just about every third person <laughs> here in Nashville. Yeah, and uh, we moved here about two thousand and one. And I uh, taught guitar, played guitar, did some recording sessions, things like that. Around 2005, I got a phone call from a wonderful gentleman, uh, Gabriel Smith, who he was familiar with the internet marketing end of things. Mm -hmm. And he had done some research and he said, I know that a guitar course would sell if it was in-depth and done well. Could you teach that? So I said, uh, sure, I'll do my best to try and help. So both of us began that initial meeting with absolutely no idea what we were getting into, <laughs> as so many great things start. We started filming, I mean, it's laughable to think now the, the, the low amount of preparation that was done for it. I did some outlines and just basically taught what I was teaching in my private instruction. Sure. So we got started, we re- recorded it over the span of about four or five weeks, uh, over the December in uh, 2005, I was still very busy teaching and playing and traveling and whatnot. So I was, uh, you know, we were doing it at nights and yeah. on weekends. And I mean, that initial course you would see me and I, it would be literally be two o'clock in the morning when I'm recording this. And we began the process of editing the video and it became uh, clear to us early on that there was going to be have to, we're going to have to add a lot to the video in order to make it where folks would learn from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure, we can just set up a camera and just talk at them, um, but folks don't learn very well with that. They need more instruction than that. So we decided to go go through that, and that decision alone was three months of just gut-wrenching work. Oh, sure. Anyway, after it was all over, we did the book. We were graphic designer. We got the book done. It was about a six-month process of, of creating it. Then uh, he had it manufactured. I picked up my first few copies of it. I thought, 
cool, my name's on something, and uh, then I went back to teaching. Gabe, his expertise was internet marketing, mm -hmm. and uh, so through the magic of Google AdWords and affiliates and getting great reviews and things like that, one and two and three and five started to sell, and one of the keys that, that helped us was there was just so much that we had put into it that I look back and I think that was one of the keys is holding their hand through the process. Yeah. Not only did we present the information, so many people present the information in whatever topic it is. What is uh, the next step on that is actually taking them through the content. So mm -hmm. I would have, we would have workshop times where I would actually go through what I was wanting them to go through for their daily practice time. Okay, right. so I'd say things like, okay, grab your guitar, let's get started, let's look at this first exercise or this song, and let's do it together. And I'd walk them through that. What that ended up doing is it created a very personal connection between me and the learner. Mm -hmm. This was not something that we realized until... You know, kind of the first time we had our guitar conference, everybody knew me. They were connected to me. I've showed them how to play. They've cussed at me when they can't figure out how to do it. The easy part is to present the information, is to set up a camera exactly. and say, okay, tell us what you got to tell us. Isn't that and the you, truth? Yeah. You blather on about whatever the topic is. And then you think, you say goodnight, and you think your job is done. Your job isn't done when you present the information. Your job is done when they have learned the information. Let me give you a standing ovation for that. I think that, <laughs> that, that is so powerfully profound. What you're saying is just music to our ears because it's what we say at NSA all the time. And that is that it's not about the speech. It's not about the speaker. It's not even about the audience. It's about the audience learning what the speaker brought or, or absorbing the message. That is, that is my measure of whether I have succeeded. Right. It started with a discussion board. Mm -hmm. And my only instruction on that from Gabe was, Steve, when you get a chance, every now and then get on the discussion board. That was all the instruction I did. Well, I was a teacher, yeah. and so I was, I was, it was a real gas for me to go on to the, <laughs> to the discussion board and hear these people from, you know, across the country or in another country asking me about guitar chords or bar chords or whatever. Yeah. And so I'd help them out and I answered every every stinking one of them I could, you know. <laughs> and that little idea right there started to build this whole community. After about four or five months of that, uh, Gabe had, had uh, talked to me about coming on in this budding little company. The, the first project went so well. It was 10 DVDs. Yeah. Then fairly quickly on, they said, well, let's, let's do another one. And so the idea, big idea for that was, I know as an instructor that you can't pick up this or that concept with just three exercises. It's going to take a lot more content than that to actually walk somebody through. And if you don't tell them that, uh, you're fooling them. Yeah. You're, 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 you're kind of baiting and switching them doing that. If you tell them they can learn this or that concept and only you only give them application for just a little bit yeah. um, one of the things that I've learned is uh, you give them an ounce of uh, content and a pound of application one of the one of the main pillars that has has uh, caused the company growth is our relationship with Gibson guitars mm -hmm. that all started with one of the employees that we hired he used to work at Gibson he knew some of the folks over there and about that time, we were developing a, an iPhone app. It would link back to our lessons, and it would provide 
guitar chord chart and tuning and whatnot in the iPhone app. Yeah. Right about that time, you started seeing commercials on TV with Eric Clapton holding up the Fender iPhone app. Mm-hmm. And we had kind of pitched this idea to Gibson. Would you be interested in co-marketing this thing with us? Mm-hmm. We get to use your name. You get an iPhone app that you didn't really have anything to do with. Yeah. And the secret of our relationship on the iPhone app is that no money changed hands. Um, so you we, immediately got brand equity uh, on a global scale. Immediately got that brand equity. So when that iPhone app came out, that was a very exciting weekend. Yeah, I'll uh, bet. It went, it went up in the free music apps. It appeared Finally, we got to the top of that weekend of the free music apps. We were on the front page of iTunes uh, at that point. It was around that time that the head of Gibson, Henry, was like, okay, who is this little company again? And uh, let's uh, get them on the phone. Let's do more with them. You bet. You know, a lot of our our speaker members have, have specialties that are particularly well aligned with a with a, a manufacturer or a, you know some other major company and the company will will embrace them in a way that Gibson did yours so it, mm-hmm. sponsorships make great great alliances and can be it, wonderful uh, the relationship with Gibson we started with the iPhone app and we won the billboard uh, music app for best branded app wow wow uh, um, that was in what was that 2010 I think was when that when that happened you started all this in, well, like eight years ago, nine years ago, something like that. So we're not talking about something that goes back years and years and years ago. You've built a really substantial presence in the marketplace. So we, and I'm talking on behalf of our listeners, we can learn from your methods and the types of decisions you made and how you made them and the commitment to quality that you made that, that you were describing and apply that to our own businesses, and the very good chance in a, in a short period of years, we can create something quite substantial as well. We wanted to redo the course, and we wanted to redo it in HD, not change anything. I'd use exactly the same scripts, mm-hmm. exact same songs, things, whatever. We just recorded in HD. So that was, that was an idea and a thought, and kind of beef up the packaging a little bit and uh, do all that. Was, we pitched that idea to Gibson, after all of the good, warm, fuzzy feelings from the iPhone app, hey, would you be interested? It was called Learn and Master Guitar. We could throw your name on it. Gibson's Learn and Master Guitar. I could use Gibson Guitars. You'd, again, have an educational product that you didn't work for, and we would get the use of the name. They, they agreed to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, this global, iconic American brand was, was coming into... Uh, into our world that was the key that opened up retail to us Mm -hmm. suddenly we went to then publishers and said hey we're now gibson's learn and master guitar and they said i'm gibson okay and they (laughs) opened that opened up retail so we started to get into uh guitar centers Mm -hmm. and barnes and nobles and things like that and uh, now you know 30 percentage of the sales are are from retail outstanding Uh, what we now provide is all of the educational content on uh, Gibson.com. What makes our little corner of the thing work is is a combination of some smart marketing, the relationships that we have with the corporate areas that we have. But without that, without the actual meat of instruction, a mm-hmm. good product, 
then it wouldn't work. We could have marketing, but we'd be marketing something that couldn't stand on its own. There's always the temptation to, to shortcut on uh, good instruction. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to do good instruction. It's, it's really easy to cut a little shortcut here, not provide that resource there. But that'll save us some money, mm-hmm. and uh, that's a real pain in the rump to try and put that. So we won't do that. The only guy that's going to actually know that you did that is some poor guy in some city across the country with his guitar in his lap. He's going to be the only one that's going to know whether you cut the corner on that. And uh, Well said. I appreciate it. And any parting comments? Music has a way of opening people's souls. We provide educational content. Uh, we donate it to missions organizations. We've worked with a wonderful organization, Guitars for Vets. Mm-hmm. And they provide guitars uh, to returning vets um, and then if they go through their program for six weeks and we provide the educational content, we provide the content for that, then they hand them a guitar. Something about a vet sitting down with another vet, it brings them back. Yeah. It brings them back. Their yeah. success rates for treating PTSD, the Guitars for Vets program, rival those of standard medicine. Wow. And wow. It's, it's an honor to be a part of that. You gotta, you got to care about those people at the end. It's not just all marketing. Well, um, well, you're a generous guy, and I appreciate your caring enough to spend some time with us. Thank you again, Steve. And what great keepers you gave us. Give them an ounce of content and a pound of application. I love that. But by far, my favorite quote of all is, your job isn't finished when you have presented the information. It's only done when they have learned the information. Wow, what a power quote. Thank you, Steve Krenz. Folks, I have the honor of belonging to the longest standing mastermind alliance among professional speakers. It's called Speakers Roundtable. This invitation only network of 20 top professional speakers began back in 1960 as a lead sharing network that predates NSA by 13 years. When I joined Speakers Roundtable in 1986, the members included NSA founder Cavett Robert, first president Bill Gove, Charlie Tremendous Jones, Don Hudson, Patricia Fripp, Jim Tunney, Ty Boyd, among others. Since I joined, along with Danny Cox that year, we, Speakers Roundtable, have invited many others into the alliance. Current members include Nito Kubain, Steve Spangler, Chad Hymas, Naomi and Jim Rohde, and 16 others. You'll meet many of them in this upcoming recording. Once a year, this group meets for about four days to share ideas and help each other grow their businesses and improve their lives. And many of these members are past presidents of NSA. Almost all of them are CPAEs. Every one of them is a a successfully published author and, and more. So it's a great group regardless of whether they get together as Speakers Roundtable or you talk with them individually. So this year, I took a few minutes to interview the entire group about a couple of things. One, how many speeches did you give before you ever got paid to speak? The answers will surprise you. And two, what is your business model? The answers to that one will amaze you. Clearly, there's not just one way to be in the speaking business. Their business models range from growing a hundred-plus million-dollar corporation to working out of a home office with no staff. 
So let's drop into the meeting room now, which is set up in an open rectangle with 20 veteran speakers seated all around the perimeter, while I walk from person to person with a handheld microphone. How many free speeches did you give before you started getting paid well? Uh, at least dozens, maybe a hundred. Four, four hundred. Over a thousand. Dozens. Dozens, and I'm still doing free speeches. Dozens, good number. 150. 400 for me. Yeah, about 50 for me. 100. 500. We didn't give many at the front end, but we're giving a lot of them now. <laughs> many, many, many. Dozens. Hundreds. Over a thousand. That's before getting paid well or paid regularly to speak. So clearly the folks here have paid the dues. What is your personal business like? Let me go to Bill Backrack and then Ford Six. I started as a trainer. I developed a little training course, and then that evolved into a speaking career. There was a time when I did well over 100 speeches a year for many years, and then I came full circle to more serious uh, coaching and training. So today, we have a comprehensive business model where financial advisors pay us uh, several thousand dollars a month over a four-year period on a four-year contract for a serious business makeover, primarily for delivering more value to their clients, but also elevating their business financial success and their quality of life. So I do some keynote speaking, but our main business is that turnkey business model that advisors pay us for over years. Excellent. Thank you. Ford Six. Hi. Well, you know, at primeconcepts.com, we have a different business model. Uh, our model really is, is not the business of speaking. It's an information marketing business. Mm -hmm. So it's how you're delivering that information. You're delivering that information or the, that valuable resource, or I say information, but that value through multiple channels of distribution. So you deliver that value through keynote speeches, through workshops, through public seminars, through online learning management systems, through webinars, teleseminars, through the web, through virtual trainings, through multimedia products, um, virtual and digital and physical. So our business model has five revenue streams. My speaking is a combination of keynote speaking for corporations and associations, but then also public events mm -hmm. where I bring people in. Second, where you bring people in, you're selling the tickets. I'm, doing, I'm putting the butts in the seats, and I'm doing the whole event. It's a public event where I'm responsible for it. So that's one revenue. So speaking is one revenue model or one revenue stream. Uh, products are one revenue stream, which, of course, you, you know, you're doing your audience a disservice if you don't monetize with products in some form. And then consulting is a natural offshoot of that. That's the business model that most people in NSA have. We have two other revenue streams, which are professional services, because when people hear me speak, they want us to actually do the work for them, which is a natural sales presentation. And then so we have professional services, and then we also have joint venture deals. So we're, we're diversified in our model, but it's still business growth. Very good. Thank you. Charlie Plum, what, what's the structure of your business? It's a very simple structure. I'm a keynote speaker. That's what I do. It's what I've done for 40 years, and I'll do it as long as I am uh, able to breathe and speak. I have a single location. I work out of my home. Mm -hmm. My clients don't know that it's a single location out of my home. Uh, uh, they don't really care, yeah, as a matter of fact. They, why, why uh, but I've never had more than one employee. I built my business as a keynote speaker, and that evolved by listening to my clients into sales presentation skills training and executive speech coaching. I 
have no full-time employees in the pension plan, although obviously I built my business with one. I have multiple people who help me with various projects. I work out of one of my two homes, San Francisco and Las Vegas, and every hotel room that I'm in. <laughs> the idea is be small, have a comfortable living without too much hassle. Dan Thurman. I'm primarily a keynote speaker, uh, similar to Charlie, in that I, I deliver probably 80 keynotes a year for corporations and national associations uh, at, a, at a pretty good fee. I also have authored two books and have some other um, products and services that I offer my clients, uh, such as video production. We have an in-house facility for that. Uh, but those are more ancillary to my speaking income. The We have one full-time employee. We have... Um, uh, a couple people who help us out part-time as well as using some uh, some vendors and subcontractors. I'm also very fortunate in that my wife, Shay, is a very talented video editor. So we have that capability in-house as well because, you know, uh, in terms of getting the getting the gigs, it really is all about the video. Yeah. Boy, that's for sure. And now a man who's about to be inducted into the Tennis Hall of Fame. Roger Crawford. Yeah, well, thanks, Jim. Yeah, my business model is similar to Charlie's and to, to Dan's. Um, I've been a keynote speaker for 30 years. Uh, I've offered, authored three books. I have one part-time staff member, and then my wife, Catherine, works with me as well. So, simplicity. Yeah. And the nature of your, yours is very different because as, as a speaker who's got physical limitations, you, you came into the business from a very different perspective, and combining that with tennis makes for an amazing combination. Tell us a little about that. Right. Well, when I graduated from Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, Wilson Sporting Goods came to me and said, would you like to speak at our, our tennis events? And so they sponsored me to do that for a year. And after that year ended, then I started speaking in schools. And I've always said to some young speakers, I said, if, if you speak to a group of teenagers on Friday afternoon, last period of the day, in a hot gym, that'll teach you how to speak. <laughs> so I, I, I did, did, did that for a number of years. And I have, uh, I've cherished every opportunity. And after 30 years, I, I think I'm more excited about my next speech than uh, than ever, and it's been a, a career. I feel very, very blessed. Outstanding. Thank you, Roger. Peter Legg, your business model is so vastly different from the rest of the folks in the room. Tell us a little bit about that world. Uh, thanks, Jim. Well, my main business is Canada Wide Media Limited. Uh, we're a publishing business. We started publishing magazines, and we do now 52 different magazines across Western Canada and are considered the largest independent magazine publisher in Western Canada. And now we have a whole marketing department and about four websites that do very well. We can't live off the money of websites, so the magazine is still the most important thing. We've been in business for 40 years, and we have never, ever lost money, ever. Uh, we have a staff uh, about 120, 121, and the people... But just a second. A staff of about 120. So listeners, let that sink in for a moment. All right. yeah, most of the people that I speak for are primarily in Western Canada. And when they learn that we've never lost money, they want to know how they too can do that. So that's what I try and, uh, try and teach them. Thanks, everyone. And NSA, that's not the end of this. They also shared lots of good tips and insights into success strategies for the speaking industry during that meeting of Speakers Roundtable. 
So you'll want to make sure you stick around for future VOE issues where we'll continue to share their many insights. Boy, they look like they're really having fun. I wish they let me in their clique. I wish I could join them. NSA and GSF members, this is Greg Williams, your CLO, Chief Listening Officer for VOE, saying, Welcome to this edition of Glad You Asked. In this edition of Glad You Asked, we address the thought that many NSAers may have had at one point during their tenure of wondering if NSA is cliquish. Here to give their perspective are longtime NSA members, former NSA President CSP Lenora Billings Harris, and current NSA board member CSP CPAE Bill Cates. The topic of NSA clicks comes up, it seems, about every five years or so. As a past NSA president, I know the board and other past presidents are highly sensitive to this issue. Because we want everyone to feel welcome, many of us often invite first-timers, our real VIPs, to sit up front whenever we can. Having said that, however, I am acutely aware of the perception that there are NSA cliques. So let's clear up at least one myth. None of the social groups recognized by NSA are exclusive. For example, anyone interested in attending the Monday evening events held at convention by the various social groups is welcome to do so. Just be aware of the focus of the group you choose. Beyond that, I do believe that adults need to recognize that human nature dictates that people who know each other are going to connect and gather. When you want to meet someone, you need to just garner your own courage and introduce yourself to that person. Starting the conversation is fairly easy because we all have speaking as a common denominator. Of course, all of us can widen our circles and welcome others in if we choose to. Before the Internet, almost everyone who attended an NSA event learned about it from a current member. So they knew at least one person. Now many people show up at chapter meetings and national NSA events without knowing anyone. So that first meeting can be daunting to some. Just remember what it was like when you were new to your chapter or attending your first convention. Also recognize that everyone is not an extrovert. Joining in is harder for some than for others. Ultimately, each of us can reach out and meet someone new. It is just a matter of choice. Hi, this is Bill Cates. I've been a member of NSA for over 20 years and currently sit on your National Board of Directors. When I joined NSA the winter of 1990, I too thought there was some sort of in-group or main clique and that if you weren't in this special group, you were nobody. Then I discovered the truth. There is no in-group. NSA is not made up of exclusionary cliques. Here's the truth as I see it. When people get involved in NSA they meet a lot of members. These members become friends, and at conventions, friends often like to renew their friendships and hang together. I think that it's just plain human nature. It's natural for people to want to spend time with people with whom they have one or more things in common. Before I started volunteering in NSA, while I knew a lot of NSA members, I didn't really know the board members or past presidents or, or many of the other visible members. 
Now, I've met a ton of new people who are naturally becoming my NSA friends, or as Fripp would say, NSA pals. Do I enjoy welcoming in new members and mentoring all levels of NSA members? You bet I do. I like the mix of nurturing old relationships and creating new relationships. So if you ever get the feeling that NSA is exclusionary or has an in-group or is made up of cliques, I'd really like you to think again. NSA is an association of people who, over time, form strong professional friendships and like to keep these friendships going and growing. The annual convention is one of the key opportunities to do this. If you ever feel alienated or feel like you're not part of the group, rather than retreat, step forward. Get involved in NSA. Work on a committee. Take responsibility for a meeting or part of a meeting. You'll meet new people. You'll form new professional relationships. And you'll look forward to seeing these people every year at the annual convention, as well as the many other gatherings throughout the year. Well, there you have it. I'd like to thank Lenora Billings-Harris and Bill Cates for taking the time to give their valuable insight and for addressing the perception that NSA might be perceived by some people as being cliquish. To submit your own questions for VOE, send them to Stacy Tetchner at Stacy. S-T-A-C-Y at nsaspeaker.org Until next time, this is your Chief Listening Officer, Greg Williams, and I'm glad you asked. Last issue, I introduced you to PEGs. PEG, P-E-G, is short for Professional Expert Groups. They focus on the specialties within the world of speaking so that people of like interests can get together and talk about their commonality. I've had several people ask me what kind of PEGs there are. Well, I caught up with the PEG chairs so that they could each give us a brief description of what they do So listen as they describe themselves. You may find a peg that's just right for what you do in your speaking business. Patrick Ullman, tell us about your e-peg. This year, the e-peg is going to be focused on all the things that help you build your business off of the platform. That includes lead generation, online video, membership sites, online book publishing, and just all the things that help you continue and increase your income once you walk off the stage. Russell Trahan, tell us about your peg. The consultant's peg this year is going to focus on best practices, sharing what really works among the members. No need to keep reinventing the wheel when there's a wealth of resources from the members. So really help you build your business by learning from those who've been there and done it before you. Tamara Smiley Hamilton, tell us about the motivational keynote peg. The motivational keynote peg is laser focused on being useful and relevant to our members. We want to be engaging and help the motivation keynote speakers be inspired every time they pick up our newsletter. Well, Todd Cohen, tell us about the sales peg. The sales peg is everything sales. It's helping everybody understand how we sell ourselves every day, how we sell our practices, our speaking capabilities, our keynotes, our training, whatever it is that we do, it all starts with our ability to sell it. We're going to bring you best practices, people in the industry who have done it, been successful, built great businesses, because everyone's in sales every day. The sales peg is where it's at. Susan Fitzell. 
You're in charge of the education peg. Tell us about that. The education peg has been dormant for a few years, so our goal is this year is to revive it and to find uh, meaningful content so that people in the education market will be able to get marketing sales tips that they need, mm -hmm. as well as addressing both the youth market and the people who work directly with teachers and administrators. So our goal this year is to really look at what our membership might need and want and to focus our attention there so everyone benefits. Doug Stevenson, tell us about the Storytellers Peg. The Storytellers Peg is for everyone in NSA who tells stories and wants to be better to take their stories to the next level. We put out four newsletters a year. In each newsletter there are some tips and techniques from me, the story guy. There is a featured interview with someone on audio and there is a featured article along with resources. So somebody is out there scouting out audio, video, articles books on storytelling. So there's a lot of resources to take your stories to the next level. Carol Copeland-Thomas, tell us about the diversity peg. Thank you so much, Jim. I'm glad to be back. I actually am very honored to have started this peg some 10 plus years ago, thanks to the strong leadership and support we had from NSA, including Lenora Billings-Harris, Tracy Brown at that time, and many others. The roadies were also involved in that support. Now, all these years later, the peg has continued, and I've been asked to chair the peg again. So I'm very excited about where we're going to go in the future. Steve Lashansky and Robert Stack, you have the business coaching peg. Tell us about that. The new re-energized, reinvigorated business coaching peg is really here to help people understand how to utilize your expertise in the best possible way. We've brought together a lineup of the best and the brightest in how to build your practice, how to build your impact, and how to grow your business through using business coaching. Excellent. Absolutely, Steve. We've got uh, some of the best speakers who coach in NSA, uh, like Laura Berman-Fortgang, Marcia Reynolds, and many others. Eric Lehman, tell us about the health and wellness peg. The health and wellness peg is going to serve two major focuses this year. Mm -hmm. First of all, we are going to be a great resource for folks who serve uh, audiences that talk about health and wellness. Okay. The second main focus is to really create a healthy and well NSA. We as road warriors, we have so many challenges and sometimes we might think that our health and wellness can happen when we come back home. But if we speak on the road 180 times a year, we're facing choices that we need resources for. And that's what the health and wellness peg is here to do. We're here for your mind, body, heart, soul, and wallet. Teresa Funk, tell us about the writers and publishers peg. Well, first of all, we know how incredibly busy you are and how hard it is to find time to read another newsletter or listen to another pegcast. So we promise to value your time by providing content that is precise and relevant to today's changing publishing markets. So the publishing industry has become more difficult to navigate, a little more confusing. So we put together a really impressive roster of the top industry experts that are going to help people understand the changing climate of publishing. So whether you write a column, a blog, or are working on a book, we want to show you how good writing can enhance and advance your speaking career. NSA, this is Brad Montgomery from The Humor Pig. What can you expect from us? We're going to talk about branding, ROI, elevator speeches. No, we're not going to do any of that. But we are going to have some fun listening to some outstanding experts in comedy and humor, people who can take an audience from zero to laughter on purpose anytime they want. They're, they're going to share both their uh, their techniques and also some war stories. 
And best of all, it's going to be fun. So come ready to learn. Come ready to laugh. We'll see you at the Humor Peg. Now tune in. Thanks, everyone, for giving us a peek into the world of pegs. And now, a word from our president, Ron Carr. As we start the new year, what are you going to be doing differently to get better results? I'm going to give you three potential sales situations, and I want you to tell me how you would respond to each one. In the first sales situation, you last year spoke at a client's sales meeting and got rave reviews. You call the client this year to speak again at this year's meeting, and they tell you that they would love to use you, but they can't use you two years in a row. But what they do want is for you to give them references. In the second situation, a prospect calls you regarding a potential keynote opportunity. What would you do? And now for the third sales situation. You get a lead for a potential keynote, but clients say they're moving towards a speaker with a bigger brand name. What would you do in this situation? The good news is you would do the same thing in all three situations. Stop selling a keynote, consulting gig, or coaching assignment. Rather, find out what the customer is trying to accomplish and their challenges in getting there. In situation number one, we had a situation where you spoke last year and they loved you. Now they claim they can't use you. I was in that situation, and by asking the client what they were trying to accomplish this year and the challenges in getting there, what I found out was that the vice president wanted to do a game show. He wanted to implement the game to have some interactive dialogue and learning, but the problem was the game that he picked was too expensive. Knowing that my client, the vice president, likes to be in front of his audience, I suggested we do a game ourselves. I will be the MC. I'll interview the audience, they'll give answers, and the VP will act like a judge. It turned out to be a great success. There was a lot of interactive learning, and guess what? I got hired in a year when he thought he couldn't use me. Situation number two, prospect calling for a potential keynote. What would you do? Instead of selling the keynote, I started talking about the results they wanted to achieve that year and the challenges that they found themselves in. The result? Not only did I sell a keynote, but I sold seven two-hour breakout sessions in the same meeting and 500 sets of books and CDs. Now position number three. You get a lead for a potential keynote, but the client says that they're moving towards a speaker with a bigger brand name. I would do the same thing and find out about the challenges. Because when I found out about those challenges, I created a scenario, a project, in which we weren't just giving them a keynote, but also a customized training session and a consulting assignment that involved traveling in three cities to help find solutions to their problems. You see, at the end of the day, we're not selling keynotes, consulting projects, or coaching gigs. What we are selling is results. And if you start looking at the results, you will be differentiating yourselves on your core competencies versus just trying to compete on the same thing everybody else is trying to sell. Since it is January, let's make a collective New Year's resolution that we will stop selling keynotes, consulting assignments, and coaching, and start selling the results. If you find out what your customer is trying to achieve, then, and only then, will you be in an influential state. The words you use are not what makes you influential. Influence comes from the context and how you position your products and services. As for NSA, I look forward to seeing all of you in Tampa for the winter meetings. If you want to improve your platform presence, sign up for the StageCraft track. If you want to make more money on your IP beyond your speeches, sign up for the Leverage Lab. 
Either way, I will see you in Tampa. Thank you, Ron, for your message and for your leadership. And now a word from my good friend, Tony Alessandra, about our upcoming Leverage Workshop. 86,400 seconds, 1,440 minutes, 24 hours. This is Tony Alessandra, and like you, I have only 24 hours in a day. Yep, that's 24 hours to answer emails, take out the trash, wow an audience, and sleep, if I'm lucky. So what's the secret to getting it all done? Now, if you know, please share it with me. But here's what I do know. You have to leverage your time, money, and content. After all, these days, success isn't measured by shoe leather and airline miles. Instead, learn to create a stream of recurring passive revenue using the content you already have. I'm talking about royalties, continuity programs, assessments, and so on. So register today for NSA's Leverage Lab. From February 28th to March 2nd, you'll learn how to optimize your revenue stream with tips from the best, like Stephen Shapiro, Lorna Riley, and Jeff Davidson. Just head to nsaspeaker.org slash attend to sign up for Leverage Lab today. Because really, what could be better than making money in your sleep? Finally, eight hours well spent. I'd like to welcome to VOE Gwen Talbert from Washington, D.C. Gwen, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's nice to have you aboard. I tell you, you come from a world that we would love to understand better. You're in the broadcast world. You're in TV. You've been in radio. You've got a lot of experience as a, I guess, a broadcast journalist. I actually started out doing film and television acting. Mm. And I was interviewed at one point about some of my film work. And at that time, the producer said to me, I think you have a great television presence. I would love to have you work with us. And it was just a cable community television show at that time, a small one. And I said, no, I'm sorry, I'm trained to ignore the camera. (laughs) And he persisted, calling me constantly until I finally agreed to be a guest host on the show. It was a news magazine type show. So it sparked my interest in television, to say the least, and I started looking at pursuing that. I ended up going back to school to get a journalism degree, which I did. I'm originally from Canada, Mm -hmm. and I did this all in Montreal, my home. And I ended up eventually working for the Weather Network. I'm currently a weather anchor and feature reporter in Washington, D.C. at the local Fox station, WTTG. I would call that pretty high on the food chain. Not bad. Not bad for a Canuck that uh, Uh crossed the border. And so I ended up uh, working, starting out actually working at the Weather Network, which is equivalent to your weather channel in the U.S. And that's where I got my education in meteorology and and a little bit more expansive in being on television. Mm -hmm. From there, I went on to work at the local CTV station. And then we fast forward a few years where I sort of hit the glass ceiling because I not only went from weather, I went to consumer reporting, I ended up hosting a travel show shot on location, and then decided, what do I do now? I then started to pursue uh, opportunities south of the border. So I ended up in Dallas, Texas, where I not only was hired to do weather, but I ended up also doing feature reporting and a live audience talk show. I got that little tidbit given my way because of my experience on this first community 
sort of interview magazine mm-hmm. show, which was great. Now, just for a second, I'd like to observe something that that may not have occurred to some of the listeners yet, and that is the talent that was required for the first things you were doing in acting and following that through and seeing how it applied to your on-camera time, how it applied to your audience interaction, how it applied to the, the broadcast reporting. And then you went back and got a journalism degree, so you made sure you were truly qualified for the next steps in your career, next phases. And that taught you how to be professionally curious, how to be articulate, how to, how to package information in a way that people could consume it. Correct. Wow. I left Dallas in 2002 and landed in Washington, D.C., very nicely with an offer from two different stations, so I had my choice. Um, It wasn't too hard because one was a morning shift, which means getting up at 2.30, being at work at 3.30, and need I say more. Yeah. So what I have found in terms of speaking, being professional speakers, and being a professional speaker myself in relation to my television work is the stage presence has become so much easier for me because I'm always in front of the camera talking to my viewers as though I were talking to a live audience. And when I'm writing, I'm not writing in a sense that it's a, uh, a book story that's being told, let's say, but I'm writing to an audience. Yeah, you're writing to the listener clearly. To the listener yeah. clearly. Yeah. So my viewers are hearing my voice in how I deliver my material. And talking to viewers is, you know, I was always taught, you are speaking to a number of people. Mm-hmm. You're speaking to the little 10-year-old. You're speaking to the business person, the traveler. You're yeah. talking to the construction worker who's outside. You're talking to the housewife. You're talking to everybody. So it's very conversational. It's not so scientific and over the top that nobody can understand it. Well, where are the earning opportunities for speakers in the broadcast world? Does it make sense for some of us to, to explore that world? Without a doubt. Yeah? Definitely. There's always times when there's subject matter that comes up that's going to be up for discussion in a morning show maybe or even in an evening show based on a specific report of something that they're saying, well, they want an expert to go to in that particular field. So I could be a health and wellness expert. I could be a sales expert, whatever. And as long as I keep them aware of how do I do that? How do I keep the station or whoever? What I would always suggest is that you put together your material You write a letter, you send it to the news desk at any station. There's always a planning department at every station. The planning departments are responsible for booking guests and for researching and finding out who the experts are that match the specific topic that that they want to cover. Mm -hmm. And then they'll look in their file and say, oh, we now have an expert on blah, blah, blah. So let's call on this person and see if they're available to come in and be a guest that we can question about whatever that particular yeah, subject that, matter is. Should that arrive in written form or, or in t- email or what? What I would do it both ways. Mm-hmm. You know, I would send something very nicely packaged by snail mail, and I would also send, th- send something by email. And I would even go so far as to even follow up and also pay attention to what's happening, what's current, what's going on in the news that you think you could tune into. That's something I think many of us miss, and I know I did for a long time. When I was communicating with the media, it didn't occur to me naturally to review the day's news Mm -hmm. and to think about the implications or the hook or the possibility for commentary or something like that. Those that do that seem to be on the air a great deal more. 
And that's, that's the best thing to do. And if you do that and you're proactive about it, and there is a particular topic that you know this is in the headlines for the next three days or it's been in it all week, or obviously it's something that they're talking about. They must be looking for resource people. Here I am. I'm available, and here's what I can offer you. I definitely have a lot of experience in that. I speak to people all the time about this subject. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got this book out about it. I mean, that is the way to do it. That is the way to do it. Well, you need to get on their radar, if I may use a weather term. Yeah. That's indirect pay. In other words, that gets me on the air and it gets me opportunities. What about direct pay? Is there Are there opportunities to, be, to earn a fee or a salary or whatever in a non-full-time role in the media? It varies. Mm-hmm. We, for example, have a political commentator who we have on a regular basis that is paid. Mm. And being in Washington, D.C., of course, you can see a nice need for that with all the things that happen. There's also the possibility of tapping into segments. If there is a regular, let's say, we used health as an example. Mm -hmm. If there's a regular health and wellness segment, why not do a pitch to a station of saying, look, you know, I'm an expert in this blah, blah, blah. How about giving me an opportunity to be a part of your regular health and wellness segment? I'm the next Dr. Oz. I'm the next Dr. Oz. Yeah. And we saw what happened with him. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Another really good tip that broadcast outlets love is if you are able to come to them and say, look, I've got this segment I think would be great. I happen to have an affiliation with ABCD who's willing to sponsor this segment. Would you be willing to give me that airtime, that's sponsored, Mm -hmm. on a regular basis? Number one. That means they don't have to worry about the compensation per se because it's sponsored. So that is income coming in for them. You get regular exposure. Mm -hmm. You become a household name. From that becomes a spinoff of people saying, well, this person's on channel so-and-so and and they're an expert. We want to hire them to speak at our event because – and it just – it can become a domino effect. It's like having a best-selling book. The value of being on television – And being able to have that one-minute, two-minute, or three-minute exposure is invaluable. And if we learn to think in sound bites and think in in small delivery segments, packages like that, then we open up a whole new world to ourselves, right? Exactly. It's it's a matter of being concise, Mm -hmm. and it's a matter of being able to put enough information together that somebody can grasp and do something with in a short enough amount of time that makes people pay attention and want to come back to you again. Well, that says it well right there. Yeah. Thank you, Gwen Talbert. Thank you. Thank you very much, Gwen. Got a special treat today, Kristen Arnold. Welcome back to VOE. Thank you so much, Jim. Tell us, what what are you working on? Well, I am working on the definitive guide to moderating a lively and informative panel discussion. Define it, if you would, for those that are relatively new to that point of view. So a panel discussion is when you bring together some experts on a topic or maybe some rising stars or practitioners within that corporation or that association, and you're moderating that panel discussion. You're getting the a lively conversation, getting some Q&A going um, among the panelists as well as within the audience. So it's a very interactive uh, format. In a panel presentation, there's a beginning introduction. There's some introductory comments. There's usually some curated questions, which is stuff that you have in your back pocket. There's Q&A from the audience, and then there's some wrap-up stuff. 
Those are the basic elements. One of the worst things that speakers do, Jim, is that they forget that they are supposed to be moderating and they start participating as a panelist. So it's about being very um, judicious about when you add content. And if you're not comfortable letting go of that spotlight, I do not recommend you opting into saying, I can be a panel moderator, because it looks really simple. But in reality, there's a lot of moving parts that happens behind the scene. Really, as a moderator, you're acting as a facilitator. Most good moderators, they don't take a position. They take more neutral ground, and they're making sure that the conversation stays flowing that there's some interest, that there's some um, sparking, there's some tension, yeah. there's there's some really probing. But you really want to have um, someone who is instigating tension in the group and making sure that they're pulling out diverse viewpoints. So if you've got people at the get-go who are all doing the dashboard dog, yeah. their wob- bobbleheads are going up and down, you know, that's boring. Mm-hmm. You need to create that tension. So part of your role as a moderator is to do your homework and find out where are those points of contention? Where are those disagreements? But you need to keep it fresh and exciting for for the audience. Sometimes we think, oh, I'm just trying to make the panelists look great, Mm -hmm. which is true. But really, the bottom line is you want to deliver value to the audience. And you need to make sure that you're extracting that value from the panelists. Can you give us kind of a structure so that we know these are the things I need to learn about? These are the things I need to master or understand if I'm offering moderation as one of my services? Right. So one of the things that you need to do first and foremost is begin with the end in mind. What is the point of this panel. What is it that needs to be learned? What is it that we need to talk about? What is it that we need to feel? What is the point of this panel discussion? And then you invite the right people in. Yeah. Um, you know, you pick a sexy title. So you're, you're casting it. your movie. Oh, basically. absolutely. It's the same thing that we do as a, as a speaker. Yeah. You know, we think about what is it that we want to accomplish and then what are the moving parts to it? Um, And there are lots of different ways that you can do a panel discussion. And I think a lot of times, Jim, we fall into a trap of, well, you know, there's an introduction. And then each panelist gets five (laughs) minutes to blather on about their opinion. And then, well, you take some questions from the audience. And then you wrap it up in a little bow. And it doesn't have to be that way. What are the alternatives? Well, some of the alternatives is you don't even have to do introductions. I mean, if the audience Mm. knows everybody... Why should you spend five minutes on introducing the panelists? Heck no, just launch right on in with questions. And you know where the best questions come from, Jim? They come from the panelists themselves. There you go. They're going to give you softies, but you need to tease out what are those different points of view before you even get there. But really what you're looking for is that sparky dialogue. What drives me nuts about panel discussions is we'll talk to to Jim first, and then we're going to talk to Sally second, and then we're going to talk to Tom third, and there's no discussion among them. It's like just a series of little mini presentations. It's like, I just don't get it. Why would you do that? And it really doesn't gravitate well to the younger generation. They like to see that spontaneous. Well, they want a Twitter feed so that they can give you the question on the instant they think of it. Absolutely. And that's another um, thing that's really kind of neat about doing a panel moderation is that you can be monitoring that Twitter feed and using those questions in the Q&A. Mm-hmm. Involve the audience as early on as possible. A lot of people wait until the Q&A session at the end, and they're already, like, zoned out. 
<laughs> but there's yeah. nothing that says you can't start with questions from the audience at the beginning, or you can't do polling of the audience, or that you can't, you know, start with a video clip or something. Yeah. All right, Kristen, I want to do a lightning round with you. I'm going to say, here's a do, and then I want you to follow it with either here's a do or here's a don't. Okay. okay? Do ask the meeting planner who has booked you to speak if there are going to be any panel discussions or head table discussions with multiple presenters and offer to be the facilitator. Ooh, I like that one. Here's a don't. Don't hog the spotlight. You're the moderator. You tee it up. And if there's a lively discussion, get out of the way. Good. Oh, here's a good one for introductions, is you simply put a slide with the name of the person, a lovely picture, and then whatever bio information. People can read what's on the slide. And then once you've introduced everybody, you now have a slide of the four picture, four people with their name and just a, a keyword right underneath them. So there's a, a little prompter about who's who's what Very good. and put it in the same same order that they're seating. Here's another do. Do practice saying their name several times to yourself before you say it into a microphone. Do practice your transitions. From one presenter to another. From, from one, one presenter topic. to another, from one topic to another, going from your curated mm -hmm. Q&A to your Q&A with your audience to your close. Look at this as the same framework of a very interactive speech in that, you know, you start out strong, you start off with something that's interesting, provocative, cheerful, uh, or at cheerful, least energetic. Yeah. energetic, but it's not about you. So it can't be, right. you know, your seven minute opening story. It's got to be seven seconds of something that's, you know, really catches people's attention and, and brings them in. And you're like, you know, we're going to have a fabulous conversation because this is really all about having a conversation. Yeah. By the way, PowerPoint in panel discussions is lethal, <laughs> and you're going to have people who want to show their slide deck if, if they must, one, limit them to one or two tops. If you take a look at what's really resonating with audiences today is that there are panels that have controversy or really interesting personalities, or they're talking about a really interesting topic. I mean, yeah. otherwise, if you're going to have four panelists who are doing panel presentations with some Q&A at the end, that's not really a panel discussion. Those are more panel presentations. And I think that's what is traditionally thought about a panel. And that's why mm -hmm. people just throw them together. And they really don't create a experience for the audience. If you look at, at really good panel discussions, that moderator put in a lot of work a lot of preparation work. Physical layout. Traditional panel discussions, a bunch of talking heads, you know, people sitting at a head table. Well, actually, that traditional format of, of having a, a head table um, creates a barrier between the panelists and the audience members. Not only a physical barrier. A physical but barrier, as well as a pretentious barrier. Mm -hmm. So these people... I'm important. I'm important you're and you're not. <laughs> So one of the things that I recommend is that you take away the table, okay, okay. Um, and that you put the chairs closer together. Um, a lot of times they're very spread out or they put them on these big 
lounger chairs. No, 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 no. You put put people together so that there can be like an intimate conversation that we're all sharing in. How about ending it? What are some tips? You always want to look for takeaways. Mm-hmm. I mean, the so what question. Um, it's a nice way to wrap up is to ask the audience, so what are your takeaways? Um, that's one way. Um, you can ask each panelist as you go along, what's, your, what's the one thing you want the audience to walk away with from this discussion? You become the person who chooses to make this a success. It's a success not for the panelists, not for the organization, but for the audience members getting value they can use and everyone walking out of that room feeling like they did something that mattered. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Kristen. For our Music of the Month, we go to longtime NSA member and leader, Robin Kriesman. Robin is not only an excellent speaker, but he's also a professional musician. He's offered to share a song with us this month. Fidgety Digits. 
Once again, I'd like to offer a special thank you to our VOE team. This audio series is brought to you through the combined talents of Alina Aldrich Ettringer at High Point University's Nito R. Kubain School of Communication, Barbara Paris and her editorial team at NSA headquarters, John Schwartz, who does our content editing, and Rocky Heyer of Master Video, who puts it all together for us. Thank you to the team, and thank you, NSA, for listening. Stay tuned. This is Jim Cathcart. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.